0: had a chance last week uh, to spend the week with uh, all of our missionaries and the leaders of our training centers across Europe. We gather every fall for what we call a TMAI Summit, and we rotate the location of that summit uh, at the headquarters of a different school. So over the years, we get all of our guys who are teaching and training exposed to what each school is doing. And this last week, uh, we were able to be hosted by our training center, our seminary in Tirana, Albania. And it was a pretty remarkable experience. Some of us are old enough, if we're willing to admit it, uh, that we remember the Cold War. We remember the the period of time before the wall came down. And I remember growing up as a kid praying for the persecuted church behind the Iron Curtain. And the country that always stood out to me as a kid was the country of Albania. Why is that the case? Because they declared they were the first and total atheistic state, country. Uh, Enver Hoja, who was the dictator uh, for many decades over that country, determined that he was going to eradicate the small country of Albania of any reference to God. That included Islam. Uh, this was a country that was ruled as part of the Ottoman Empire uh, for many, many decades before communism, so they were familiar with the teachings of Islam. They had mosques and so forth. They also had had a, a Christian witness and testimony in the land, so there were evangelicals uh, and Christians, Protestants there. And Enver Hoja made it his mission to just purge the entire country of any Christian reference. Now fast forward. We're sitting there last week, Enver Hoxha's home, his estate in the heart of the capital, is where our ministry is based. Uh, Which is a great testimony to God, right? Um, But to be gathered with guys across uh, the continent of Europe and and into what was the former Soviet uh, Republic, guys from Russia and Ukraine, guys who are ministering in places like uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Armenia... Some of these other states that were ruled by uh, uh, Russia at the time, we counted up of all of our schools, uh, all but one of them are operating in a post-communist context. Even our school uh, in Germany is located in East Berlin, which was cut off by the wall itself uh, from any access by Western missionaries. Hal knows this well. That's the focus of his ministry among Russian speakers uh, around the world. And we have the privilege in our generation to openly equip and train and serve the church. They have the freedoms to evangelize, proselytize, make disciples, fulfill the Great Commission. But the reason last week stood out to me so significantly is we had uh, one evening uh, at dinner a missionary who'd been there for uh, over 25 years, and he had just completed a research study on the history of evangelicals in the country of Albania. And he took us back before things were ruled under communism to what God was doing through missionary efforts in those days. And it was just a reminder that in every generation, God's at work to advance the glory of his name, uh, the making of disciples, and the building of his church among the nations. And we sing about that this morning you paid close attention to the songs that uh, Jonathan selected, each of them recognize uh, the work of salvation, but not just in a limited fashion or an exclusive fashion for you and me, but with regard to what God was going to do among the nations with the great aim and greatest purpose, and that was that men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation would do what? Would lift their voices, and more importantly, would surrender their lives to make Christ Lord, to bring glory to him. You know, there's a wonderful personal benefit to salvation, isn't there? Not only do we uh, avoid the penalty of our sin and spending eternity separated from God, let alone the anguish and, and torment that comes with uh, the suffering of hell, but it's much more than that. It's being invited into a personal relationship with God Himself. And that begins at the point of your conversion today and will continue for all eternity. And God is preparing us to be a gift offering to his son, Jesus Christ, where he will be reappointed, reestablished as head over all things. This is the future that's already been ordained by God. It's been written of in the scriptures. And we just have the privilege and the opportunity to make sure our lives are in line with the mission of God and his purpose today. That means with your kids at home. That means at work this week. That means in whatever outreach opportunities you engage in, if it's taking in kids uh, from the foster care system or if it's serving uh, by way of outreach in our local prisons or uh, using your your medical uh, uh, skills in a volunteer capacity to serve, uh, there's so many ways that we can be faithful to God to participate in his mission. And as we've had a chance to talk to Fowley and Lily and be reminded of what God's doing through them in Madagascar, we considered local opportunities, I wanted to take up the challenge uh, that was made to me and address the issue of this question, why should we be involved in cross-cultural ministry? Or why should the church be involved in missions? And so, when I come to this topic, um, something, of course, I'm excited to speak about, but I realize that many Christians are committed to the Great Commission— Uh, But most of us have a very limited understanding as to what God's purposes are in the Great Commission, the purposes for his church. And we'll look at it in a moment, but but we know in Matthew chapter 28, before Christ ascended, he instructed his disciples to go and what? Make disciples of all the nations. But to be honest with you, many believers, that's the only real understanding they have of the purpose and cause of missions is sometimes what can be felt like just a sense of duty and obligation. Christ commanded it, I need to obey. And that's true. But I want you to understand, we don't need to pursue our involvement in gospel ministry out of guilt or just a sense of duty. I want you to understand a little bit more uh, of the greater context in Scripture for this wonderful calling that God has for us and then let you maybe appreciate uh, to a greater extent where you fit into that. And so I want to begin by asking this simple question, what is the purpose of the church in the world? One theologian, Russell Pliny, made this statement in answer to the question, what is the mission or purpose of the church? Here's his answer. He says, since the mission of God is his glorification, all that he does is related to that goal. Thus, the aim of the church is first to glorify God. Second, we are called upon to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. And third, we are called to make disciples of those converts by baptizing them and teaching them through both word and deed, the doctrinal truth of the word of God. So Pliny here, as a theologian, obviously a great student of the scriptures, in answer to the question, what's the mission or the purpose of the church, brings great focus to it. He says, ultimately, the end is that God's glorified. Notice who's the primary benefactor in God's mission. Is it us or is it God? It's God. God's working for his glory. Therefore, even our own redemption fits into this greater purpose to some extent, but people can't live for God's glory if they're idolatrous people, can they? How can you live your life to bring glory to the one true God if you're bowing the knee to whatever form of idol that might exist in your culture? It might be an idol carved of stone or of a tree, okay? As Romans 1 tells us, man is a worshiper and he will worship, but in his rejection of worshiping the creator, what does he worship? the creation, some form of the creation, okay? All false religions, all secular philosophies, all of them have one thing in common. There's another object of deity that man bows his knee to and worships. So we have a dilemma, don't we? How can God's purpose for man be realized if man's an idolater? Somehow, man needs to be brought to a place of repenting of his idolatry and again, bow the knee to God himself. That's the work of the gospel. It's not just the gospel message that we proclaim. It's the testimony of what Christ did to take on the burden of our sins so that we could be seen rightly and justly and satisfying God's holy standards so that we could be forgiven and be reconciled to him that's the amazing message. You and I get to give testimony to. And that message about the work of Christ is what frees men and women from idolatry and restores them back to a place where they can surrender their lives and worship to the one true God. So this week, okay, if you're dropping your kids off at school and you're seeing their teacher or the crossing guard or whoever it may be, if, If you're going to work and you're engaged in a a meeting around a conference table, or if you're traveling somewhere or you're coaching a soccer team or whatever, what you need to understand is everybody that you encounter who does not worship God is an idolater. And there's only one thing that's going to release them or free them from their slavery to idolatry, and that's the work of Christ on their behalf. And the work of the gospel requires that that wonderful message is announced, it's proclaimed, it's declared by God's people. That's why Paul calls us ambassadors. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, but we represent his kingdom to those who are citizens of this earthly kingdom, and someone needs to broker peace between those two kingdoms, and that's you and me. Now, John Piper, who obviously many of you uh are familiar with and have read many of his books. He's devoted quite a bit of his ministry to focus on the task of missions. In the writing of his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he makes a very famous statement that I want to repeat this morning. Listen to what Piper says in dealing with what the purpose or mission of the church is. Piper says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Worship is missions exist because worship does not. He goes on to say, worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Think about that for a minute. It's easy for us to have a sense of duty and even a love for Christ, want to engage in the task of evangelism and cross-cultural ministry. We want to be ambassadors. We want to declare this wonderful message that's been revealed to us, that's transformed our lives and set us free. But many of us still consider that the task of missions has as its ultimate ultimate aim our benefit and the benefit of men and women. And what Piper's pointing to here is the same thing that Pliny is saying. He's saying, listen, worship is the ultimate issue in missions and evangelism. And I love how he says it. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. So the reason we're engaged in missionary work, cross-cultural work, evangelistic work, both locally and abroad, is because people are not worshiping Jehovah. They're not worshiping the God of the Bible, the God who revealed himself through his word, the God who incarnated himself and came and took on flesh and walked among men, the God who took up residence as his spirit within us at the point of conversion as a deposit, a down payment until he returns. They don't know the true God, and therefore they worship a substitute. God is redeeming us not just to save us from hell. He's redeeming us that we might live in right relationship with him and fulfill his purpose for man to glorify him. So when you think of that colleague or that schoolmate or the person at the gym that you're going to encounter this week, just understand that God's desire for them is not just to avoid going to hell or to improve or make their circumstances here on earth better because they're obedient to him. His greatest desire is they come to love him and devote their lives to him and to seek his good and his honor. And they begin to live a life that reflects his character so that he can be praised and honored. That's what God wants from your friends and your colleagues and your classmates. But they can't do that unless one of us tells them how they can be freed from their idolatry. Does that make sense? So let me read to you Piper's statement again in its full context. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over... And the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So, in many regards, as we engage in gospel ministry, we're engaged in this ministry that has eternal consequences. As far as someone being raised in newness of life, following Christ as their Lord and Master, And that new resurrected life will continue from that moment on through all eternity. All we await is a new body and the perfecting of this flesh to then match this work of new creation in the inner man we will be made right and then allowed to enter into the presence of Christ and to worship him. Can there be anything more noble that we devote our lives to than to this end? Aren't you grateful somebody declared to you the glories of Christ? Aren't you grateful you discovered that release from slavery to idolatry? Yes, we contend with temptations and we battle with that in this present age. All that does is increase our hope for the future, doesn't it? When we will no longer contend with the temptations and, and issues of fallenness with our own flesh or in the world around us. You ever try to dream about that moment where you won't have to battle? with temptation or your struggles. We will be set free one day. The most loving thing we can do is to tell others about this great hope that we have. That's why earlier I commended you, because I know you're so faithfully involved, many of you, on a regular basis, redeeming the opportunities, being purposeful <laughs> to declare Christ. This morning, I want to invite you to 1 Peter chapter 2 as our text. And I'm just going to use this as a foundation to launch on, to kind of illustrate for you this wonderful theme of of worship and redemption in Scripture. And hopefully this will provide for you a richer, more robust biblical context for why we are engaged in this work, and not just live with a sense of guilt for not doing more in this regard. Let's read the text beginning 1 Peter 2, verse 4. says and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the same stone, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. In verse 9, our key text, but you, speaking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul, and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, do what? What does your Bible say? Glorify God in the day of visitation, the day of Christ's return. Will they be prepared for eternity to glorify God? The promise here is if we live our life for the glory of God, God's gonna use our lives to draw others, to see him in us, surrender their lives, surrender the idols in their lives to make God the God of their life. Peter writes to his church, not just in this text, but throughout this book. The occasion, of course, is uh, the church now, because of persecution, uh, they fled persecution, they've been scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and he writes to them in chapter one, he makes clear allusion uh, in the first uh, 12 verses of the work of salvation that has been proclaimed to them and the ministry of Christ Says in verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicated, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and these things which now have been what? Announced to you through those who preached the gospel. He goes on then to say in verse 15, 14 and 15, if you are followers of Christ as obedient children, now your calling is to be holy like the one who's holy. This is why we pursue sanctification in our own lives. So Peter's already explained to them that they've been saved and they've been set apart then to live a holy life. So when he speaks to them in this text, he wants them to understand that living this life has significant implications for the advancement of the message of the gospel. He goes on uh, throughout this text, later in, in chapter 2, verse 24, testifying of who Christ is and what he has done. He says in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's by his wounds you were healed. He goes on in chapter 3, verse 18. Saying, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for us, the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but what? Made alive in the spirit. And then he makes the same promise to us that we've been raised in newness of life through that same power. Chapter four, we begin to read, uh... Peter's concern that if this is true, that you've been rescued from idolatry, you've been rescued from slavery to sin. He puts it this way in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same person, because he has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. So to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That's our call. And he goes on to say, look, the time's coming past to live like the unbelievers, the Gentiles. It describes their life, life of pursuing sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking and partying and and what? Abominable idolatries, okay? He says, don't live that way. He says, now live this way. Verse eight, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. He goes on to talk about how to to demonstrate your spiritual gifts and service towards one another, motivated out of a heart of love. So this epistle that Peter's writing to the scattered church is saying, listen, you're up against hardship, okay? Satan's coming after you. They're going to try to diminish, squelch, okay, and put down this growing movement of God called the church. You're going to get hit hard. Life's going to be tough. He talks about suffering in this epistle. But he frames for them a very clear understanding why they're on the planet. God loves us, doesn't he? And I'm sure that it would make sense to us that if he really loved us, he would take us home. Give us an escape from the difficulties and the challenges and the persecution that we'll encounter as enemies of the kingdom of Satan. But he leaves us here. he left the church here. He actually set them there and scattered them beyond. So Peter needs to come alongside and say, I know you're suffering. Okay, and let me help you understand why you're suffering, and then as you're suffering, what God's purpose is for you. Do you suffer? There's not a face I'm looking at right now that doesn't have some form of suffering in your life. Everything we know has been touched by sin. Every relationship, right? Every economy, every business, every, everything in our lives has been touched by sin. But if you think that your whole life is just about enduring with the hope that Christ will return, you have to ask this greater question, why does he leave us here? Why not just take us home where we won't even have to wrestle with the temptation of sin anymore and we can fully glorify Christ and honor him? It's because he has a mission for his people. He's not done drawing men and women out of idolatry. He wants to gather more. And he's appointed for every individual, right? He's called us. He's elected us. He's predestined our lives. He knows we don't. But what we do know is he's been very clear in what his intentions are for his people is to be on mission for his glory. And so in this text, verse 9 particularly, we'll just draw out some implications to this end. Peter starts with a word of contrast. He says, but, and this is direct reference to the preceding verses where he's just talked about those who've rejected Christ, the cornerstone. They don't want to submit to the teaching of the word. They don't want to recognize him for who he is. And they don't want to turn from their idolatry. And he says Christ to them is a stumbling block. And they stumble not because Christ is himself the offense, they are the offenders. They don't want to be obedient to the teaching of the word. Therefore, they doom themselves in rejecting Christ. And then he turns to the church and he says, but that's not you. He's saying, but you. Let me remind you who you are and what God's done for you. And he uses four brief phrases to remind Christians of this great work that God has done and wants to do through them. He says, but you, the church, you believer who's." Facing persecution and suffering and hardship. You are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. And you are a people for God's own possession. And these four very abbreviated phrases point to some of the greatest doctrine we find in the word of God as it relates to to the work of salvation. This phrase, you are a chosen race, points to the great doctrine of what? Election. This is one of the ways God receives the glory that he deserves through the work of the gospel because you and I can't do anything to what? Earn or merit our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, but the gift of grace or faith that's been given to us it's a wonderful expression of grace to us, what we don't deserve. But God even gives us the faith. He's the one that begins the work of regeneration through His Spirit's testimony in our lives so that we can respond. God enables us to respond to the gospel message. Therefore, He alone deserves the, the credit for that. We can't point to ourselves. And, and by the way, this sets believers apart, being chosen by God, from the teaching of every other false religion, and faith, that represents man as, as one who's seeking God. Please understand that's not true. Man does not seek God apart from God seeking him. But because they want to take credit, these false faith systems describe man as a seeker. And therefore, they come up with systems to somehow earn or merit the favor of the God they believe they're seeking. And that's why if you talk to a Muslim or you talk even to a Catholic or another cultist, these people never find rest. They never have assurance or confidence. And that's rightly so. Because they know the fact that they can't meet even the standard that those faiths teach. So they live in despair at best, some kind of wishful thinking or hoping that they've done just enough to tip the scales. What a miserable, hopeless way to live. But you don't get up in the morning, do you? As one redeemed by Christ? Worried about the fact that you haven't done enough to earn or merit God's favor? No, you get up and you say, God, I don't deserve anything. And you've given me everything. So Peter's reminding the church here that they are what? They're people chosen by God. So who gets the glory? God gets the glory. All right? What a great truth to meditate on. He goes on to say, and you are a royal priesthood. And this has many allusions uh, throughout Scripture, Uh, of course, talking about uh, the concept of, of priesthood. And a simple job description, I've said it to you before, is this. A priest is a a mediator between sinful people and a holy God. And in here, because Christ is the ultimate priest, or pictured that way in Scripture for us, and of course, he's also king. Peter uses the language here to say, we're part of a royal priesthood. We work for the king. And we work as reconcilers, mediators. We stand in the gap, if you will, announcing that there is forgiveness for sins. And we proclaim that message, and as people uh, repent and ask God for the forgiveness that only he can extend to them, we function in a priestly manner. That's what you do when you preach the gospel. You're a priest. And Paul says to us, the church, this is our purpose in life. So here he's talked about the doctrine of election he's talked about the doctrine of reconciliation and then he goes on and talks about the doctrine of sanctification he says you're a holy nation okay a holy people and this is the promise that god is going to complete the work that he began in our lives of perfecting us into the image of christ it's a beautiful beautiful promise And what he's saying is, if you're chosen of God and you're going to function in a priestly manner, then you also need to live a holy life. And we've talked about this before as well. If we don't live holy lives and put God on display in our life, then how can we proclaim him? If we're not merciful to our fellow man who doesn't deserve mercy, can we proclaim this awesome message of the ultimate mercy that's not deserved? And say, we claim that, we take advantage of every day, but you know, I'm just not gonna extend that to you for this minor offense. And that's where the world rightly looks at us and accuses us of being hypocrites. And says, well, you preach this, but you live this way. And all that Peter's reminding the church says, listen, your holiness, your, your godly life, living out the character of God that he's perfecting in you through the power of the Spirit and the testimony of his word, has everything to do with your ability to be an effective priest. So we're chosen by God, the doctrine of election, we're assigned to the role of a priest, this is the great truth of reconciliation. To do that, we have to live a holy and sanctified life. And then he adds this last phrase. He says here that you are a people for God's own possession you might think, okay, yes, I get it. God bought me. He paid the price. He owns me. But there's a greater doctrine or another doctrine that this is in reference to, and it's the doctrine of adoption. This idea of God's own possession, the phrase what it actually means is that you've been brought into a family relationship with God. I think this is amazing. God could have chosen us, couldn't he have? And God could have um, assigned to us the task of of being ambassadors and, and priests. And he could demand of us that we walk in holiness. But this fourth phrase describes really the qualitative relational aspect that we get to enjoy with God. It's personal. The doctrine of adoption in the ancient world uh, that is alluded to both in the Old and New Testaments is this idea that someone is, is brought into a family who is a slave but is given the full rights and privileges of a biological child. And that's why we're referred to in Scripture as being joint heirs with Christ. That's awesome. So we live for him. We live for the glory and honor of Christ. Because he, if you will, is our elder brother. He is the one who paid the price to redeem us and bring us into this family relationship. So Peter takes the time to remind the church who they are. And how can you not reflect on these great truths without your heart swelling with gratitude and worship and honor to the God who loves us and rescued us? You can't if you know him. This is why earlier in the text, Paul says that God is building us up into a spiritual house, verse five. And we're gonna be the spiritual house, you and me next to each other, stone upon stone upon Christ the cornerstone. He's building us up into a spiritual house so that we might offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is reminiscent of what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Present your bodies what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is an act of worship as we spend our lives in this direction. Now, this is interesting. This text and those phrases I actually read to you have a biblical historical context as well. If you go back to Exodus chapter 19, verses five through six, we find the nation of Israel before the Mount of Sinai. Moses comes down and he says to the nation of Israel, these are God's words for you. You are to be to me, what? A kingdom of priests and a holy people. People for my own possession. So catch this. Peter now is quoting from Exodus chapter 19. This was the initial assignment given to the nation of Israel. God had brought them out of idolatry. Remember the story? They lived in the land of Egypt. He defeated all the Egyptian gods through the plagues. He had made a point that there is no other God. I'm a jealous God. I deserve to be worshiped. And he says, now I'm going to take you into a new land. And his plan was to eradicate that land through the conquest of all idolatry in the land, which they did. But before that occurs, he needs to declare to them what his purpose is for them as a people. And these are the very words that we find in Exodus chapter 19. Sadly, if you rehearse the history of the nation of Israel, they continue to bow the knee to idols. And they became useless to God in advancing his mission to bring him glory Because they embraced the idolatry of the Gentile nations. The land which had been purged through the conquest, ultimately, Solomon himself built temples to all of the gods of his foreign wives and ushered in all that idolatry. God eventually divided the kingdom. They go into a whole period of conquest as discipline to them for their idolatry. And this is really the unfolding of the entire Old Testament there's some amazing accounts. There were some faithful people, a guy like Daniel and his friends, who were faithful. and Even a Gentile king like Nebuchadnezzar does come to faith in Christ. But at large, the nation of Israel failed to stay on mission. They begin to think that the gospel was exclusively for them. They wanted a Messiah who was going to come to redeem them from their human circumstances, their physical circumstances. And therefore, the Gentiles could be damned to hell. They'd be glad for that. As long as they got what they wanted. God forbid that ever becomes our thinking about the lost. That because of their offenses against us, because of their, uh, the frustrations and the difficulties that we encounter with the world. And it's overwhelming some days, isn't it? And it's pervasive. But may we never think in terms of, of the gospel being exclusive just to us. God's got us here in this circumstance, just like those that Peter's writing to, and he's got a purpose for us. And unlike Israel, we need to be faithful to not think that the gospel is just for us and no more, but we need to live our lives in such a way that God's put on display. And that's where Peter goes in his writing of this verse. He continues on, in saying there's a purpose here. If you know who you are and what God's done for you and how he intends to bring glory to himself, he says this, he says, here's your purpose, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, the one who's called you out of darkness and called you into his marvelous light. What does it mean to proclaim the excellencies of him? Who's called you out of darkness? There's two aspects to it. One is just as I'm doing right now, you can stand before people and declare. That's a proclamation ministry. And I have to tell you, all throughout Scripture, you have to proclaim the gospel. You can talk about friendship evangelism all you want. And I hope you're good friends with the loss, with the goal to bring them to Christ. But if you never tell them about Christ, don't think they're just going to guess. Okay? That's a lazy, fearful, approach you've got the power of god at work bringing people to faith in christ you have nothing to be afraid of and so what if they're unkind to you so what if they want to break the relationship with you so what and i don't say this easily so what if you lose your job or lose an opportunity okay and i'm not saying you have to preach during the work hours, against company policy. But I'm talking about too often we never tell people about Christ. And so Peter's saying, you got to talk about it. people got to know who the God is that you worship. But he also says here, and he goes on, particularly in verse 12, and saying, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. He uses the same term, excellent, or excellencies. And what he's saying is the way you live A godly life reveals God to the lost. And so Peter is saying, as you're out there suffering and facing persecution, you've been reminded of who you are and what God's purpose is for his people and his church. Now live your life that demonstrates and proclaims the excellency of the God you love. Worship him in word and deed. And as a result of your faithfulness, into verse 12, as they observe this in your life and they hear the message proclaimed, many will come to glorify God themselves. They'll be released from idolatry and they will come and bow the knee before the only true, perfect, holy, and also gracious, forgiving, and merciful God. Why do we talk about missions at Grace Church? Why do we focus on evangelism and gospel ministry? Because it's what God's appointed for us in our generation to be faithful to. Our pastor says this so often. The only thing that we can't do better in heaven that we can do on earth is what? Evangelism. Evangelism. And may that be true of us today as we think about praying for our friends around the world and we give testimony about what God is doing locally and abroad. May he find us faithful in our generation to do this for his glory, not just man's good. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for the chance to focus on these truths this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes to the opportunities that exist uh, before us today and let us create opportunities uh, that we can in the upcoming week and give us recollection of these great truths of who we are as we meditate on them. May they strengthen our hearts to go out and to live godly lives and to proclaim you to the lost. Use us to bring many to know you and to worship you. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.